Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, How to Neighbor. In this series, we are learning how to build relationships with our neighbors and how to do good in the context of those relationships. We hope you find this podcast meaningful. We'd love to hear how God is touching people's lives. Just go to our website at www.valleybrook.cc, select Contact Us, and send us an email. Well, good morning, church. I'm sweating. That was fun. How are we doing this morning? Amen. Well, if you're a guest here, we want to, again, welcome you. We're so glad that you joined us, especially if you're a guest from VBS. It was our honor to host your kids this week, and so we're, we're so glad that you're here uh, to join us in worship this morning, um, and we love to meet you. So I know that we say this a lot, but come out, meet us in the Welcome Center, or come meet one of us uh, after the service up front, but we'd love to meet you, just get to know you, shake your hand, that'd be awesome. But uh, we're in week three of our series this summer. My name is Pastor Dan, by the way. I'm the associate pastor here. Pastor Clark is out for the summer, uh, healing from surgery. Uh, he's doing great, by the way, an update. He's recovering, awesome. I know some of you have seen him, but just continue to hold him up in your prayers. Um, but we're, we're in a series called How to Neighbor, and, and we've, um, the last, over the last two weeks, have focused on different ways that we can neighbor well as a church. You know, in, in scripture, somebody asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord God with all of who you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And we're commanded and called as a church to be loving, not just to the people that look like us or share our problems or, or might share a fence or a lawn, but to all people. And so we're looking at four ways in our society and our culture that the church needs to step up and love better and neighbor better. And so we've looked at, you know, races reconciled. We looked at orphans embraced. And, and this morning we have a, a special guest speaker to share with us the topic this morning. But I just want to introduce Andy Needham. Andy Needham is, uh, it's a long title, everyone. So ready. He's our interim district executive minister. But Andy works for our network of churches called Converge uh, New England. Converge is, again, just a, a relationship, a network of different churches with the goal of furthering God's kingdom here and, and all over the world. And so Andy has taken the charge of leading our churches in New England. He's been a blessing to work with. Um, but Andy also works, you know, up for Berea Ministries up in New Hampshire. Uh, he works up at the camp there helping out with that. But he runs a thing called Greenhouse, which the whole heart is to help build into and, and disciple and honestly just bless uh, Christian leaders, youth leaders, worship leaders, ministry leaders in New England. See, you know, because we're in New England, not a lot of conferences and training come up this way. It's usually all down south. And so Andy and his team have been amazing and just coming together and putting together awesome training and leadership training for that. I know that our teams have been blessed with all throughout. And so we're just so grateful for all he does in our region. But why don't we this morning give a warm Valley Brook welcome to Andy Needham. Well, good morning, Valley Brook, Valley Brook family. I, that was a tongue twister there this morning. Good start to the, to the day. But I just want to say um, I am so honored to be here today. I've gotten to know your church and the heart of your church through your leaders. And I want to tell you that even when you're not around, they speak really highly of you. So that should be an encouragement to you. And it's a, an honor to see this local expression of the kingdom of God. And uh, as Dan was mentioning, I, I come on behalf of Converge Northeast, uh, and we represent about 100 churches that this church is part of that network from northern New Jersey up to uh, northern Maine, and all different kinds of expressions of the local church, but all with a common heart centered around the gospel to start churches, 
to strengthen churches and to send missionaries. Those are our three objectives. And, and really, you may not even be aware of this, but your church and Clark and, and your team here have really taken a leadership position in helping foster that. And uh, so even though that sometimes goes under the radar, uh, your church is a blessing to other churches because of that heart that you share. So I just wanna say thank you so much for that. And uh, it's really a privilege. Uh, today, as was mentioned, we're gonna continue in your series, How to Neighbor. And I love the heart behind this series because we're really looking at really practical yet very challenging realities in living out this challenge that Jesus gave us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And today we're going to look at that loving our neighbor as ourselves in relation to those around us and those around the world who are in need. How do we effectively help people who are in need? but not just help them. And that's why the title of our series this morning is how we're gonna look at what it means to actually empower the poor. Our title this morning is Empowering the Poor. We're gonna consider some big questions this morning. We're gonna consider really what, defining what poverty actually is and maybe question some of our own assumptions from a Western perspective about what poverty actually is and means. And then consider what is God's heart for us as individuals and then collectively as a church, as Valley Brook and as the church around the world to respond to those needs. Because when we see needs, and I don't question this in any of us, when we see people in need, there is something in us, a God-given innate reality that our heart strings are moved. But how do we respond? How do we go about that? In a room this size, I know that many of us here have been one degree of separation or maybe in our own lives experience different types of need or lack in our own realities. Maybe there was a season of transition in a, in a job change for you, or maybe a time when bills were tight or you were just starting out in life and, and money wasn't really uh, abundant. And really when we look at poverty, we'll talk about this this morning, there's really a large spectrum. Like there's a whole, there's all kinds of different definitions of what that might mean. But I was thinking about a season in my life when we didn't have very much. And it was when I was super young, uh, 21 years old was when I got married. So we're talking, it was just over 15 years ago. I'll tell you basically how old I am. Uh, but my wife, Bethany, uh, she was 18 and 21. So we got married very young and we're just starting out. And we really honestly hadn't lived much outside of our parents' houses. And we, we got married and we, of course, we went to Disney World because when you're kids and you get married, you go to Disney World. That's what you do. And, uh, um, and then we come home and we had our first apartment together. And for me, this was like a great milestone. And I was just super excited that we had our own place. And um, it, it was just kind of looking at everything through rose-colored glasses like a newlywed would. But as I look back and I realized that we really had one of the most vanilla, basic, unattractive apartments that you could ever imagine. Like just picture a 600 square foot rectangle with white, white walls, beautiful linoleum tile. And then this carpet that, you know, the kind of carpet that was so cheap that it probably could have been indoor outdoor carpet, but in this situation it was indoor carpet. So that was, that was our situation there. And then inside of this is glorious abode, uh, we brought our very meager possessions. And so the best way I can describe what it would look like if you were to kind of see it today is imagine if you were moving out of your home and you took everything that you treasure and everything that you need and you put it inside of a truck and then you had to survive an evening before you move with just a few things that you probably would leave on the curb for somebody to pick up later on. That's essentially what our interior decor looked like. I don't even think even Joanna Gaines could have done much with what we had in that, in that home. So 
I mean, I'm talking about we had a, a table someone gave us that was clearly warped. We had two metal folding chairs that were from Walmart. Uh, we had a, this is true, we had a bed that was so firm that we actually slept on the floor for the first few nights of our marriage uh, at, at our new place. And we had this wonderful, and wonderful, I mean fully sarcastically, a wonderful futon in the living room that was from a department store, not a high-end one at all. If you want to know what a futon is, a futon is either an uncomfortable couch or an uncomfortable bed. That is what a futon is. It's one of those two things. So anyway, one day, Bethany, early in marriage, um, we're, I mean, we're just, you know, love is in the air. That is how it is at the Needham home. No fights happening. Bethany goes off to run an errand, and um, I am sitting there in this broken chair that we have in the living room, admiring this large white wall that has nothing on it. We don't even have photos. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, man, I need to do something to put some character and some color into this place. And so I start digging around, and I find this blanket. It's a quilt, a patchwork quilt that someone had given us at our wedding. And I'm just going to be honest with you. It's probably their first, this person's first attempt at making a patchwork quilt, okay? It was blue and white, and it looked like someone who had maybe just squeaked by in home ec and definitely didn't pass geometry, all right? That was kind of the combination of what it, what it looked like. And um, if you made that quilt and gave it to me, I'm sorry about that. But... Um, so I, I reach into the uh, closet and I pull out my one tool, which is this tiny little like Toys R Us style hammer and these little glorified tacks that are used to hang photos on the wall. Uh, they were not very strong, but fortunately I had like a million of them. So I just made my way. I got the chair against the wall, pull up the blanket, and I just take these tacks and every single like inch and a half, I am just driving them in and moving in. And I just cover the wall with this beautiful, beautiful blanket. And I, I sit down and I admire my Mona Lisa. Like, Bethany is going to be so impressed. She wasn't. <laughs> she was not impressed. And uh, she came home and this was actually the origin of the first fight in the Needham home. I, it's definitely not the last one, but it was the first time that we butt heads in our house. And uh, she made some comments about living. She didn't want to live in a dorm room and all kinds of different kind of things. Like, was I turning this into a frat house? All this kind of stuff. And, and I, I just, I felt insulted that she didn't appreciate my incredible design abilities. Uh, so we play it forward. We are going to bed that night and we are still fighting. Like, you know, that kind of marital fight where you go to bed in a fight? Not a good thing. So eventually it got to the point where she had enough and she said to me, that's it. I am going and I'm sleeping in the living room. First time she's not going to sleep in the bed. And that was a huge sacrifice because that meant that she was going to sleep on that terrible, terrible futon. So this was obviously a very difficult situation. So she heads off into the other room. I'm sitting there smug as can be, no repentance in my heart at all. And um, about 10 minutes later, she comes crawling back into bed. And I said to her, what? What's going on? And she said, well, I went in the living room and it's freezing out there. And the only blanket that we own is nailed to the wall. <laughs> it's a 100% true story. Now you know why every single Christmas I seem to get a blanket. Uh, but 16 years later, I'm happy to announce that we have enough blankets and we were able to make it through that. But... You know, many of us have been there in times when things were lean uh, or difficult. And, and really, there are such a, a, a range of realities for that. 
Um, it could be just a surprise tax bill that hits you at the wrong moment that really stretches your means. And then there are other realities of poverty that we encounter in our everyday life. Like if, if you've driven on the interstate in Springfield and you see the tents of the homeless people that live underneath the interstate and, and that type of reality. Or maybe when you go to the grocery store at an intersection, there's a woman with a sign that's asking for a handout. And maybe like me, you've been to other parts of the world and the globe and you've seen developing nations where where it really puts in a whole different perspective, my really embarrassing perspective on lack, where you see people who are living, large families that are living in worn down shacks and barely making it through. When we wrap up this morning, I'm gonna share the story of this boy here who I got to meet in the country of Haiti and share his story with you today. But the point is that poverty in that full spectrum is near to us and it's far from us. It is around the corner and it is around the world. It's in our backyards. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives us a picture. He shares with his followers a portrait of what it's going to be like when he returns to his people. And essentially what he describes is that he will separate those who are his and those that are not his. And using this idea of his sheep, and the sheep will know his voice. He says this, he says, I'll say to them, when was I hungry and you gave me something to eat? When was I thirsty and you gave me something to drink? When was I homeless and you gave me a place to stay? And those who follow him will say, when did we do this? When did we give you something to eat, a place to stay? When did we give you a drink? When did we put clothes on your backs? When did we visit you? And then what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 40, is he said this, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, if you've been around church, you may have heard those words before, but I wanna challenge you this morning to really imagine the reality of what Jesus is saying. He's not just saying that helping those in need is a good idea that because God is good, we should do good things. What he is saying here is that every time that we empower someone who doesn't have something, when we reach out and we impact someone who is in need, we're actually ministering to and blessing Jesus. Can you imagine what that really looks like? Consider Proverbs 19.17, an Old Testament example. It says this, if you help the poor, you are lending to the Lord. I challenge you to go through Proverbs and see how many times there are threads like that, that of this very same thought. And then there's, really we could go through a number of scriptures, but there's some passages of scriptures that literally when you read them, there's like a soul, a kick in the soul. Like it is a gut punch of reality to us. And one of those passages is 1 John 3, 17 to 18. This is a stunning verse. It says this, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us love not with words or speech, but with actions and truth. Let our love not just be something that we talk about, not just something that we theorize about, not something that's just an abstract reality, but it literally says that the love of God is not in us if it's not expressed by the way that we care for those who are in need around us with actions and in truth. 
The church needs to be a people. We need to be people. You and me need to be people who don't just say nice things, but are really actively engaged in this mission. It's not a someday, one day, I hope someone will take care of that kind of a thing. God calls us, the church, to be the hope of the world, to take the resources that God has entrusted to us, that he's given us stewardship over, that he's put within our care, the things that he's given you to manage and to use those things, to leverage those things, to invest those things, to sacrifice those things so that other people could be brought to wholeness. Wholeness before God and wholeness in this life. And the question is not, should we do something? If we did a survey this morning and say, how many of you think we should do things for the poor? It would be 100% yes. The difficulty is not if we do things. The question and the difficulty lie in what do we actually do that's going to make a difference? How do we do this? How do we meet the needs? Well, that's what we're gonna talk about this morning. In order to get it right, we have to really start building on a foundation and get our minds around The starting point really is, what is poverty? What is poverty? If we took a survey around this room, we'd have a lot of different answers, but there would be some threads through that. About four years ago, I read a book that really helped reshape, challenge, and really shatter some of my presuppositions around this idea of poverty. It's a book called When Helping Hurts. And if this is something today that God really stirs in your heart, that would be a great book to pick up and to dive deeper into, to go far deeper than we'll be able to go today. But in the book, the central thesis of the book starts with this reality. It talks about this thing that, think about this, that most Americans define poverty as a lack of something material. We define poverty as a lack of something material. So we see someone who is hungry, And the solution is a meal. We see someone who doesn't have clean drinking water and we know the solution is a well that we could dig. We see someone who doesn't have shelter, they need a home. They don't have education, we build a school. They don't have, they're sick, they need healthcare or medicine. And we operate primarily, the Western worldview operates and looks at poverty primarily from a problem of resources, a problem of lack of provision of material goods. And in the book, they reveal this study that they did where around the world, they went and they interviewed 60,000 people that were entrapped in some form of poverty. It was a wide ranging global study. And they asked the people about how they viewed poverty. How do the poor view poverty? That's an important question to ask. And here's what they found. They found that the truly poor define poverty as a mindset. We relate in terms of material goods, but the truly poor define poverty as a mindset. And this is a, it may seem like a small distinction, but this is a massive paradigm shift. This is a critical distinction. The poor do not think about poverty just because of what they don't possess. There's a hopelessness. There's a soul level despair There's an entrapment of shame that grips their lives. There's a quote early in the book that has really stuck with me. I think it drives home this reality. 
This is a man from Vietnam, and he says this, if you are hungry, you will always be hungry. And if you are poor, you will always be poor. Do you hear in that statement the weight, not just of I'm hungry and I need food, but a true despair and hopelessness? Whatever the external expression of the internal realities, the truly poor have a soul level of shame. It's often unspoken. In other words, here's another way to say it, that we often look at someone who is in need and we see the insufficiency of their resources, but they look at their lives and see the inadequacy of their themselves. And if we're, what are, what are we going to do? What does it look like for us to do, put more than band-aids on bullet holes and to walk away with a photo op of a good thing that we did? Well, we have to enter into the more complex, multidimensional, difficult, murky, hard waters of people's lives. And when we do that, it brings to light a really important reality. Something that we, especially as Christians, as those who believe in the Bible, who understand who we are in relation to God, know full well. But it's important to, to think about in, in this perspective. And that is this, that the root of all poverty is, bro is brokenness. Especially as people of faith. One of our core understandings is that the world is broken. It's broken in terms of its relationship to God. This world is filled with hurt, with pain, with sin. People are broken in relationship to understanding who they are, that they are made in the image and likeness of God. And people are broken in their relationship with other people. They're self-centered, they're selfish, there's exploitation. I don't think I really have to even expound on this when, I, when we look at and consider the systems of this world. I don't really need to make my point when I say the political climate of our world is broken. I think we understand that reality very full well. To say that there's no perfect economic system, that they all have challenges and difficulties, and that in the social and spiritual climate of our world, there is a soul level brokenness. I remember my wife Bethany coming home one day and telling me about a conversation she had. She was working at a gym and one of her coworkers, and they were talk, the coworker didn't have any faith worldview, was not a Christian, would pronounce himself an atheist. And they're talking about the brokenness of this world and why is it that people do bad things and all of these things. And Bethany just related, you know, what happened in the garden as sin entered into the world, as the curse was upon us, it's basically like God hardwired every single person for a beautiful relationship with God. And as the curse of sin fell upon humanity, all of the wires got crossed. And every single person is now hardwired in a miswiring. And we're all bent towards different forms of brokenness, different types of dysfunction. And we easily judge other people's types of dysfunction, but we live in the midst of this broken world. We're broken people living in a broken world. And that is critical when we think about poverty. And that's why it's such a game changer when Jesus stood in Nazareth 
in the temple and he grabbed the Old Testament scroll, words that the people before him had heard over and over and over again. And he took the scroll and he unrolled it and he read these Old Testament words and breathed life into them in a way that had never been heard before. And this is Luke 4, 18 to 19. This is what Jesus said. The spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus talking, quoting the Old Testament, putting it into his context, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he told those before him, he said, in your hearing, these words are being fulfilled. You see, against the backdrop of a broken world is a sin-crushing Savior. And we need to remember, as Christians especially, that the solution to our problems are not found within us and aren't even found within us collectively, but are found in our hope in Jesus Christ. It is Christ who saves. It is Christ who heals. It is Christ who redeems. It is Christ who restores. This has massive implications for us. What does it mean? Well, building right upon that, it means this. We are called to serve others and not to save others. It's dangerous for us when we enter into someone else's mess thinking that we are the provision for their salvation. Jesus is the answer. We, I am just the servant. The response and responsibility that we share as children of God is not to be the salvation. Think about this. Jesus did not say, whoever you saved among the least of these. He did not say, show me how many times your helping resulted in the perfect results. He does not ask or expect us to save people. That is his work. Around our house, we have this saying, fold your cape. Fold your cape whenever someone is trying to do the heroic thing. Because here's the truth. The world already has a savior and it's not you. The world already has a savior and it's not you. But that's no excuse to ignore the problem. It's not a call to step back. God doesn't let you and me off the hook. In fact, he invites us into his work, but it's his work. He says, I'll take care of the saving. You just join me in the serving. To take it one step further, we need to realize the difference in the ways that we serve. I want to think about different types of serving as individuals and collectively as the church. One type of serving that we do in relation to those in need is what we will call today relief. Relief. Relief is immediate. It's temporary help after a crisis. I remember a time uh, a number of years ago where my parents were living in southern New Hampshire and there was a massive ice storm, like a historic ice storm. It just coated all the trees and ice, limbs down, electricity out for weeks to come. All of the you know, services were down. People didn't have heat. And the local church that my parents were a part of, they had a generator. And so they opened the doors of the church as a warming center, as a place for people to come to spend the night or to get a hot meal. And that is a great example of the church reacting and being ready to be in an, a mode of relief. If you want to think of relief in terms of like from a medical perspective, we put it into that world, it would be 
the EMT and the ER. It's the triage unit sort of, of, of care and aid. It's the emergency response. And the church as a whole does a pretty good job when it comes to relief. We can always do better. But what happens when the news cycle turns over? When the attention on the latest hurricane or tornado or earthquake moves away? Well, that's when the hard work begins. And that is the second part of serving, which is what we'll call today restoration. Restoration. Restoration is long-term relationship. That's a key word. It's relational. And it's to de designed to rebuild wholeness. You see, when the news trucks leave, the church stays. To use our medical analogy, this is sort of the less popular, more difficult, slow process of physical therapy, all right? So you, you break your leg, you go, you get the cast on. That's the triage. That's the relief part. But once the leg is healed, there's this whole other part of rebuilding the muscle and learning new skills and relearning old skills that have broken down because of the crisis. No one I have ever met says, I love physical therapy because it's hard, it's difficult, it's a painful process. It's two steps forward, it's one step back. It's the long haul. In scripture, we think about the uh, parable that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan, which many of us are familiar with, where the Samaritan takes care of this man who's not from his culture and rescues him. He was robbed and he gives him immediate aid and relief and he brings him to a, uh, an inn and then enters the restoration part. Because it says, and even in Jesus' telling, he's giving us a foreshadow of this reality. He's saying, it says that the, uh, the man who recovered the Samaritan actually gave money and instructions to the innkeeper to continue the care for the Samaritan. And sometimes we can't stay, but there's other ways that we can stay involved in situations. An example of this in, in my own life, I remember a number of years ago as a youth pastor leading a trip to Ensenada, Mexico. It's right along the coastline, south of Tijuana, flying to San Diego, drive down about two hours south. And we were working with youth with a mission. We were staying at a base and we were doing a lot of relief type of work. We were feeding people and we were doing VBS programs and trying to share the gospel with people. And one of the days in the trip, they sent us out to a, a basically a partner mission ministry where we were gonna do some physical labor for a partner missions group. And we got to meet this couple. They're a Canadian couple. They're in their late 50s and they had moved to Mexico. And the best way I could describe it is they, they met Jesus late in life and they didn't know any better than to just do what Jesus said. So they saw a need and they're like, let's just sell all we have to go care for these kids in these migrant camps. So they found a piece of property and they were just getting started. Like we were building, you know, they had an RV and like a piece of land. That was basically what it was. But we were so moved by this need because when these migrant workers go off to the fields every day, their children would remain in their homes, humble as they may be. And a lot of those kids, one, they didn't have anyone taking care of them, but also they were very vulnerable and there was just a, a prolific amount of abuse happening to the children. And so they set up, not even an orphanage, they set up a daycare, free daycare for the migrant kids where they'd come in in their dirty, tattered clothes in the morning. They would change them out, wash their clothes, and they would uh, give them new clothes. And then they sent them home that night in their freshly washed clothing. It's an amazing ministry. And God gave us a heart for that. And our church, even though the YWAM part, the one week mission trip, the short term trip was effective, what was really powerful is over the next five years, our church invested thousands of dollars and sent dozens of trips 
to see that ministry grow and be sustained and to enter into that second part of serving, which is restoration. And that's just one example and an important one. What has God called us to in this? Here's a few things that we need to remember. You and me, we are called to relate with people, not to rescue people. This is again reminding us that we're not the savior. We are to enter into people's lives to show Christ-like empathy and compassion, not just charity. Charity is abstract. Charity is I'm gonna write a check because that'll make me feel good and I'll get a tax deduction at the end of the year. That's not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus says, roll up your sleeves, get shoulder to shoulder and get involved in people's life. We are to relate to people. We're not the answer, Jesus is the answer. And beyond that, we are called to reach out, not to reach down. I'm reaching out because I care. I'm not reaching down because I'm better than the other person. I realize and recognize that in this world of brokenness, that I bring all of my brokenness to the table. I bring all of my dysfunction. I bring the different kinds of poverty. Maybe I don't have material poverty, but maybe I have emotional poverty or relational poverty or some, ultimately all of us have spiritual poverty that is only restored through Jesus. And when we come to the table, we come equals. We don't drop a ladder down a pit. We don't reach down to someone who's below us. We, like Jesus, we step into the mess of humanity and help other people. Brene Brown says it this way, we divided the world into those who need help and those who offer help. But the truth is that we are both. Man, that hit me right between the eyes. To think about how easily and naturally, subconsciously, I separate this whole topic into they and us. To, to make it abstract, but to recognize and realize that every single one of us, this is not the most American way kind of thing, but to realize that all of us are people who are in need and we are people who are provision for others. How do we apply this today? How do we leave this room and take action on these things? Well, I hope some of these things are helping us think differently, but how do we act differently? How do we move from thought to action? Well, first of all, it's good to think about where in our lives, in our ministries, how is my church already engaged in these activities of relief and restoration? And let me just give you an encouragement because sometimes when we hear these kind of talks, we think that we need to start a new thing. That might be true, but I think what is more likely true is that God is calling you to open our eyes, calling me to open my eyes to the things that are already happening around us that he's calling us to get involved in and invested in. What are the local ministries that are making an impact right in our Jerusalem, right in our Judea? What are the, the things that we're partnering with already as a church that are going to the ends of the earth to help those in need? This church has local missions partners and, and Dan will talk about that in a little bit. Because here's the thing, this is probably my most important challenge to you. Poverty needs to move from an abstract idea to a relational reality in order for our hearts to really be, when, when God comes before us and he says, what have you done for the least of these? There should be a name. There should be names that come to our mind that we could answer that question with. Earlier, I shared a photo of a boy that I met in Haiti. It was a trip that I took a number of years ago. 
And um, a lot of times Haiti teams go into Port-au-Prince, which is where the airport is. There's a lot of need there, but there's all of this countryside. And we were on this particular trip. We were going to an area that had never been reached or encountered. And part of the way we were traveling through riverbeds, like, you know, if the river rises, we might not get back, that kind of area, the mountains of Haiti. And I, I remember as we're driving up there all around, these Haitian children were just yelling, blanc, 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 which means whites, because they'd never seen a white person before. And we come and, and there's this sugarcane field that is the origin, the genesis of this new ministry that's going to help impact this community. And the field's been cleared and, and we were staying in tents and we had some EMTs and some nurses with us. And so we set up a very basic medical clinic. There was no hospitals nearby. And so literally dozens upon dozens, probably hundreds of people are coming to get care, all kinds of different situations. And one of the first days we're there, we're there for well over a week, this 14-year-old mother comes carrying the little, this little boy. And when we met him, he was barely moving. He couldn't open his eyes. He was malnourished. He was dehydrated. Scabies had covered his face. And so we're kind of in that triage relief moment. And there's a translator talking to this mom. And we asked some basic questions like you would ask in any situation, you know, tell us a story. What is the child's name? When we ask what the child's name is, there's a pause. There's a couple questions with the translator. And ultimately the translator turns to us and says, the mother hasn't named the child. She refers to him as the boy who's going to die. Is this mom felt such shame. She was trying to protect her heart because she knew that she had no way to take care of him. And she didn't want to have to deal with the grief that was to come. The hard thing about this is that the needs were not that significant. Some basic medicine that you could get at a CVS, water, probably more than anything was connecting that mom with other moms from the village who would help her and disciple her and help her learn how to take care of her child, just teach her how to be a mom. And the transformation that took place in the course of only five, six, seven days in this little boy, from one who could barely open his eyes and was on death's door to smiling and laughing. Later in the week, after she'd come back each day, we asked the mom if we could give the child a name. And so that little boy, his name is Lavi, which means life. I never forget that story because I think of this. Just like that mom, who's maybe protecting her own heart by not giving poverty a name, we might be doing the same thing by keeping it at arm's length and not engaging the way that God would call us to. Let's go to the Lord in prayer today. God, we thank you for this morning. God, we pray that you would help us. I know for me, this is a really challenging thing. I, I don't have it all figured out. I've, I wrestle with even speaking on it, but I thank you that you have called us as your people. It's, this is your heart. You said, what is true religion? James says it's to care for orphans and widows. 
And God, so I pray that you would move us, not just in a moment, but move us to action. God, help us to realize that we will make mistakes. The church is not perfect, but God, help us to do things that are actually helpful to people. Help us to surrender our presuppositions, to lay down our assumptions, and to embrace the realities of who you are and what you'd have us to do. God, I pray for each person in this room today that they would do something tangible. And that when they think of how they care for the least of these, it wouldn't be an idea, but it would be a person with a name. Thank you for this moment, God. It's in your name we pray, amen. We're gonna close with a song. It may be a song that you may not know super well. So I just wanna encourage you, just be reflective. You can sing the words or maybe God's calling you to a moment of prayer. Maybe we respond to God in this moment. Let's sing together. And in his message, he talked about how, um, you know, we have poverty in all different forms. And he talked about spiritual poverty. And there's a reality in something that we believe here at Valley Brook that, um, that we're born into a broken world, that, that as people, and we can see it around us. If you look at the news, you can see the brokenness. Some of you might feel it more real than others, but we're all born with what's called the sin nature. We're all born separated from God because of, of the ways that we mess up, the times we've turned away, the ways that we've acted or, or done things out of the will of God. And left on our own accord, we're hopeless. But as we sung about today and as Andy talked about, because of the cross, because of the blood of Jesus, because of the fact that the creator of heaven and earth saw each one of us, you and I, and saw value God sent Jesus to live on this earth and to, to die a death that we deserved. And he took the weight, the Bible says he took the weight of the sin upon his shoulders. But three days later, he rose again triumphantly, conquering sin and grave so we could have hope of freedom and grace. And the Bible says, for by grace you have been saved, for not for by your own works so that no man can boast that no matter how hard we try to be perfect or to be in the will of God, that nothing we can do but grace alone can save us. You know, I think sometimes in our culture and on the media, some of the loudest churches are the ones that say you have to have it all figured out and, and everybody's going to hell and you have to figure before you even walk in the doors. But here at Valleybrook, we believe that we're all broken and we're all equally in need of a savior. But that that savior is here and his name is Jesus. And that if you believe in your heart, or you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so this morning, I just want to give you an opportunity. If, if you've never given your heart to Jesus, if you've never accepted the forgiveness that the cross paid for, if you've never given your life and said, Lord, be my best friend, be the Lord of my life, I'm going to give you that opportunity today. And it doesn't mean you have to do some special dance or come forward or, or, or whatever. It just means that you have to pray and, and accept the gift of grace that Jesus paid for on the cross 2,000 years ago. So with every head bowed and eyes closed this morning, if that's you, if I'm speaking to you right now and you've never made a decision for Jesus, if you've never asked Jesus to be Lord of your life, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And, and all that that means is that it, if you want to pray it silently to yourself, you don't need to pray it out loud. We're not going to make a spectacle. But if that's you and the Lord is grabbing your heart in this moment, I would challenge you to pray silently after me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for loving me. 
I thank you that you saw me in my sin and in my shame. And instead of turning your back on me, you sent Jesus to die on the cross and to rise again three days later. And I believe in the cross and I accept the gift of grace that Jesus paid for. I ask that you would forgive me of all of my sin, all of my shame, all the ways that I've fallen short, and that you would be Lord of my life, that you would be my best friend. With heads still bowed and eyes closed, you know, I just, I'd love to know if, if you made a decision for Christ this morning. So again, this isn't a, something that we want to make a spectacle of. We want to honor you and, and uh, you might be new here or, or whatever. But if that was you, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, no one else is looking, would you just raise your hand for me this morning just so I can see? I'd just love to follow up with you. If that was you, just raise your hand up high. Amen. You all can, can look up at me. You know, I think that there's a lot of practical takeaways, and, and Andy, we're just so grateful. If we could just give Valleybrook appreciation to, to Andy this morning. Um, but as Andy said, and as we've been talking about, all of these things, there's, they're way more than concepts. They're realities. And, and at Valleybrook, you know, over the past year, two years, we've made some intentional shifts to make missions and helping people and, and equipping people more of a, a forefront of who we are as a church. And so we've, this past year, we paired with this organization called Urban Alliance. And Urban Alliance is a phenomenal organization uh, based out of East Hartford that basically mobilizes and equips people to serve the needs of our community in Hartford and, and in the surrounding areas. And so basically all it takes is if after, if God's moved in your heart or you feel challenged after the service, if you go on www.valleybrook.cc, our website, uh, forward slash missions, it'll take you to a place where you can literally go to the Urban Alliance website, type in your information, type in your availability, your giftings, and they will literally plug you in with a ministry. But let me tell you this, it will take some sacrifice. It will take some some output from you. You know, I, I was talking with one couple in our congregation who serves at through Hartford City or through Urban Alliance at Hartford City Mission, and they uh, weekly tutor during the school year tutor uh, kids in the inner city who don't have you know a mom or dad at home that can do that. And they said, you know, Dan, I feel like I'm getting more out of it than than they are. But there are ways even in our backyard that we can do this, you know, and we can serve those those who ha have a lack. Um, through Urban Alliance. So I would challenge you, if that's, if that's you this morning, go to Urban Alliance website. Also as a church, you know, just so you know, if you don't know already, you know, one of the things that we take pride in is our partnership and our relationship with 6-8 Ministries in Costa Rica. We made a shift from spreading missions all over and doing a bunch of kind of more random sporadic uh, missions trips to really focusing in on 6-8 Ministries in Costa Rica. And we've been sending teams. We're sending a youth team uh, here in a few weeks, and we're going to send an adult team in the early winter um, as well. But, you know, the whole part of that is that we're, we're building a relationship with this ministry that's building uh, homes and, and for boys that have no parents. Uh, basically, we don't like to use the word orphanage, but they're building, you know, homes for these boys who have nothing to give them training and life skills and teach them about Jesus and then releasing them into their community to be movers for the kingdom of God in their context. 
And so if you want more information, that's also on our missions page. But again, church, let's let this not be the end. This, you know, the, the stories are inspiring and they grab my heart. I'm sure that they did yours as well. But don't walk out of here and turn it off and go back to life. Let it actually cause life change in your heart and in your life and in your context. And so as we leave this morning, you know, if you want prayer, we will have a, a prayer team up front. Andy's going to be up here if you want to greet him and say thank you. Um, otherwise, I will continue this conversation in the cafe. But before we go, let me give you the blessing. May the love of God, the grace of Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Go in peace. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.